3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Today is Tuesday the 22nd of August at 7am. My name is Carnegie and you're joined in the studio uh, by me, Fung and Ivka. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How is everyone? Feeling great. Feeling, Feeling great. That's nice. <laughs> Feeling sad that the women's football is over. Women's soccer is over. What am I going to do with all my time? AFLW starts soon. Oh, that's true. Mm. That is true. And there's a Matilda's docker you can watch. <laughs> Have you watched it? I've started it. It's yeah. on. It's next on my list. Yes, yeah. I'm very curious it's to watch great. it. It's so. I think like it. It really like fills the void a little bit. <laughs> I really hope that the momentum keeps going with all these discussions around women's sport and funding. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, also, you know, everything around um, how there's no out uh, gay AFL players. Um, I just watched a special on it last night and it's... You know, compared to women's sport, men's sport in Australia, there's just no one, past or present. So hoping that the women have inspired um, a different culture as well. All right, let's talk about what's coming up on the show this morning. We're going to start the show by replaying a conversation I had with Noura Mansour, who is the community organising and advocacy lead at APAN. We spoke for Women on the Line on Palestinian resistance, uh, the power of language and actions that the Australian government can take to, to take real action against Israel. So that's coming up first. Then at 7.30, we'll be speaking to a birth educator, Vanessa Shribbin, about uh, the recent inquiry into birth trauma and how people can avoid birth trauma moving forward. After that, we will be listening to a conversation that I had with Dr. Margie Beavis from the Medical Association for Prevention of War. We spoke yesterday about the latest development uh, concerning the Kimba nuclear waste dump site in South Australia. And we're going to finish up the show with a conversation that the radioactive shows Emma Crunch and Michaela Stubbs had with Jem Rummelt, the director of ICANN, up in the engine Brisbane, uh, about the ALP's stance on nuclear weapons. So as always, we have a big show coming up. We'll be right back after this. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. 
we offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Here on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, these are your news headlines for this morning, the 22nd of August. Spain won the Soccer World Cup this weekend, beating England 1-0 on Sunday night. The Matildas, of course, finished fourth overall after they lost to Sweden in Saturday night's game. This week, a Jaburung birthing tree was vandalised and damaged. In 2018, plans to cut down the trees were stopped by protests led by Jaburung women and hundreds of their allies and supporters. The Jaburung Heritage Protection Embassy was set up to defend the trees, but was removed by Victoria Police in 2020. Following several court cases, traditional custodians were given a guarantee by the Andrews government that the trees would be protected. Following a court determination overturning the former Minister for the Environment, Susan Lay's decision to do nothing, the birthing trees are now protected under Section 12 of the Federal Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Heritage Protection Act. Senator Lydia Thorpe has called for a complete and urgent overhaul of the heritage protection framework to ensure the safety of protected sites and finally progress heritage protection reforms. Richer countries and private lenders are trapping heavily indebted countries into reliance on fossil fuels, according to a new report. The pressure to repay debts is forcing poorer nations to continue investing in fossil fuel projects to make sure that their repayments on what are usually loans from richer nations and financial institutions. According to a new analysis from the anti-debt campaigners, debt justice and partners in affected countries. Activists are saying this is akin to a new form of colonialism. The group is calling for creditors to cancel all debts for countries facing crises and especially those linked to fossil fuel projects. According to the report, the debt owed by Global South countries has increased by 150% since 2011 and 54 countries are in a debt crisis having to spend five times more on repayments than on addressing the climate crisis. The report also said that many climate affected countries needed more access to grants to pay for the effects of changing climate as many are forced further into debt to pay for repairs after cyclones and floods. In news that I find truly shocking, for the first time ever, menstrual pads have been tested with period blood instead of saline solutions. Women and women's rights activists globally are outraged over the fact that this hasn't been done until 2023, highlighting how overlooked, adequate and effective baseline testing of women's health products is. The researchers used packed red blood cells, which are blood cells that remain after the plasma and platelets have been removed, to measure the absorption rates of a range of period products. This might explain why so many period products that are supposed to be highly absorbent are not. Um, midwives rally over unsafe conditions and working and workloads in Queensland maternity wards and will march uh, on Queensland Parliament on Monday as the powerful nurses union calls for urgent funding to address why they say it's unsafe 
Kate Veach, the secretary of the Queensland Nurses and Midwives Union, says there are too few staff to guarantee safe conditions for pregnant people and newborn babies in the state. She says that a recent safety audit by the union revealed some midwives were being allocated up to 20 people and babies at the same time. The Queensland government has twice held public meetings on the crisis and it promised to spend $42 million on rural and regional maternity services in its June budget. Some of the money has been allocated to train 20 GPs in obstetrics and gynaecology, but the union says no money has been allocated to midwives. Those are our news headlines for this morning. We're going to play a track for you now. Yes, we're going to kick off this morning's show with a punk song. This is by Super Tart, who is a punk band from Lutruwitta, now based in Nam. This track was released last year, and it's called Boot Licker. was the song Bootlicker by local punk band Supertart. We'll be back with our first segment after these messages. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR Kafirs are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. 
from the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. We're your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. To start the show this morning, we're going to replay a conversation I had with Noura Mansour, Community Organising and Advocacy Lead at the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, for this week's episode of Women on the Line. In this discussion, we spoke about Palestinian resistance, the power of language, and the need for the Australian government to step up and take real action against Israel. So last month, Al Jazeera published an article about the way that Western media was reporting on the attack uh, on Janine refugee camp and, and how a lot of publications were, were using language deemed quote-unquote neutral, such as Operation AIM allegedly, and in doing so removing any acknowledgement of the long history of violence and genocide uh, committed by, by the Israeli government. On the other side, though, more recently, the just last week, the Labor Party has said that they will start referring to settlements uh, as illegal settlements on occupied Palestinian land. So I wanted wondered if you could talk about how language can be both damaging but also be used as a tool for, for radical change. I think that's an important question, specifically when you're, you know, in an asymmetric um, situation or context, uh, and such as the one that we have in the Palestine context, where you have um, an extremely powerful player on one hand that is the state actor and non-state actors, right? Uh, I think it's important language becomes um, a game changer. So it's, and sometimes it becomes, you know, when we talk about resistance as well, like this is one form of resistance and one form of um, countering the, the the aggressive narrative that, or also the, vil- the vilification and discourse that happens when we talk about Palestinian, you know, people basically just resisting or demanding the right to live peacefully on their land. So I think this becomes a very crucial point, specifically when you're um, the colonized part or when you are the the less powerful, quote unquote, in the the material sense part. So yes, language is extremely important. It's, and and it's sad to see that, you know, mainstream media with, I I mean, to me, it's a misinformation and disinformation as well. When you try and downplay the severity of a certain event or incident and you say, oh, operation or conflict, and and that's just not factual because there is no conflict. There is one side that is exercising um, extreme power to further their agenda. And the other side has no tools to basically to engage in conflict, like one side exists and the other doesn't in that sense. So I think it's important to to call out these um, misinformation attempts that the mainstream media constantly keeps pushing. But then, you know, to go back to that point where you mentioned as well in terms of why language is important. And recently, a couple of days ago, the Australian government um, has made the decision to restart using the term occupied Palestinian territory. Uh, which is clearly is a step in the right direction, but that is, you know, we know Australia can do much more, should and can do better. 
I think um, unless this action is translated into, or this step, you know, it's a symbolic step and it's, it's, a, it's a nice symbolic step, right? But also it's not sufficient unless we translate it into meaningful action that would bring to an end the Israeli occupation or Israeli aggression uh, on the ground in Palestine, then that becomes something that is just mere symbolism uh, and won't have an impact, a real impact. I think what we do want to see is for the Australian government to have better voting patterns in the United Nations, to stop shielding Israel from accountability uh, when it comes to the ICC. We can't say, oh, it's occupied and it's illegal, uh, you know, under um, United Nations or under, you know, international law, but at the same time, continue to trade with Israeli uh, illegal settlements you know, as usual. Uh, so I think we we need to kind of be, it's it's great that this, you know, step has, has been announced. It does bring Australia back into consensus with the rest of the international community when it comes to the, the whole language and terminology that is used, but also it's not sufficient um, if we stop here. Yes, because there is a lot of hypocrisy in that, in saying one thing and doing the complete opposite. And also the hypocrisy of calling it occupied Palestinian land whilst also still furthering the colonial project here on stolen land. So like you said, Noura, there needs to be more done on top of just simply using language that sounds good, but if there's no action to to back that up, then it's just hollow words. Yes, agree. I was wondering in your role at APAN, and you said a lot of the work that APAN does, work that you do, is around media communication. Uh, I imagine that language is a very big part of that and feeling empowered to communicate the messages about Palestine and advocating for Palestine in the way that you want it to be communicated, that there is no room for mis- or disinformation. So, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about that in the context of your work at APAN. So we try to basically bring to the Australian public um, the um, Palestinian truth, Right. We talk about the Palestinian truth, the, the, the Palestinian narrative, uh, Palestinian demands, what the Palestinian people want uh, and what the Palestinian people are fighting for. And also to bring more updates from Palestinians on the ground as well in terms of what, what is happening on a day to day basis and how the Israeli occupation affects Palestinians lives um, on a daily matter. And what, for instance, we talk about smooth, which in Arabic means steadfastness and resilience. So what does that look like on a daily basis? Resistance, what does it look like like on a daily basis? There's so many different modes and forms of resistance that are being played out. You know, as we speak right now, I'm talking to you, Palestinians back home are resisting. And, um, you know, they exercise sumud. So uh, what does that look like? And it not, not only it happens in Palestine where... Um, people come, you know, people basically put their bodies on the line and there are, they're holding the line for basically any fight that is anti-racist and anti-colonial. And we see it happening in, on a high intensity in Palestine. Like this is what it looks like, right? The clashes between anti-colonial and colonial powers, um, between, you know, racism, uh, white supremacy um, and indigeneity. So we see that being played out on a high um, intensity level in Palestine. So yes, so we try to bring forward these examples. We try um, to talk about the beauty as well um, and, and the inspiration and the power and the agency that the Palestinian people have 
um, in their life, which is quite inspiring because if um, anyone has visited or if you grew up in a context where every little aspect of your life is being controlled by an external power, then you would realize how difficult it is and how much strength it requires for people to keep up the fight and keep up the hope and also insist on living um, a natural, normal human life. You know what I mean? Like that we insist on having parties. We insist on um, going to university. We insist on uh, getting education. Uh, we insist on our culture. We, we, we continue to fight and resist through, you know, culture, education, archaeology, um, and all these different aspects of life. So every, every, sadly, it becomes everything you do becomes an act of activism and resistance. Whereas, you know, in another context, it's just a normal daily day-to-day -day life. It sounds so exhausting, like you were saying. It is. It is quite exhausting. But also, you know, in that context, you learn to find strength in places you would not expect. Like, you know, we talk about the plights of the Palestinian prisoners, right? A year ago, we had six prisoners who, despite living in horrible conditions, like there is um, the most controlled and marginalized and targeted um, group of the Palestinian people are the Palestinian prisoners. Um, they're highly vulnerable to Israeli aggression because, you know, the nature of their lives as prisoners um and they live in administrative detention where they there's no trial no they're not allowed to see their lawyers um uh, sort of you know which is illegal under international international law as well um but we had six prisoners who managed to dig a tunnel from a high security prison and escape and you know break free for a couple of weeks and of course everyone you know we knew they were gonna be caught. They knew they were going to be caught. No one was expecting that this is going to be the break of a lifetime. But um, these kind of examples, like you draw inspiration from these kind of examples, that despite we know that life is grim and we know how aggressive and how difficult and how hard it is, but we ins we insist on you know trying. We will keep trying. So I think that's beautiful and that's you know poetic and inspiring. That was. Noura Mansour speaking to me for this week's episode of Women on the Line. You can head to www.apan.org.au for more information about the organisation. We're going to jump straight into a song now. This is by Rim Bana, who was a Palestinian singer and composer who was most known for her modern interpretations and traditional Palestinian songs and poetry. This is her song, A Rose in the Battlefield, featuring Checkpoint 303. I'm not going 
was Rim Banner with her song A Rose in the Battlefield. You're listening to 3CR. We'll be back right after this. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.
3CR has all kinds of music programs for you to hear. From blues to hip-hop, reggae, classical, punk, jazz, soul, indigenous, experimental, indie, metal and other music styles. Check out 3cr.org.au on the World Wide Web for more info. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. For the last few weeks on the show, we've been discussing the recent inquiry into birth trauma in New South Wales, as well as the recent reports on how this one of the reasons that this has been happening is because of over-medicalization of birth and the lack of continuity of care. To chat about how birthing people can avoid birth trauma, we have birth educator Vanessa Shribman joining us this morning. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Vanessa. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Um, maybe you can start by just telling us a bit about your background as a birth educator and the work you've done with women in your prenatal classes. Sure, sure. Um, so my background is as a yoga teacher and I'm a younger yoga teacher and a holistic physiotherapist. And look, the way I got into this was um, I had a very good birth experience in my 20s. I was lucky to sort of come into contact with uh, a, a great uh, private midwife. Um, I, you know, had a wonderful birth experience at home. Um, I saw the whole thing as very positive, very straightforward. My body did the right thing. And then I moved to Adelaide and I started teaching pre and postnatal yoga and became aware that there was just such massive trauma for women. And seemingly, first of all, uh, just over so many women, you know, it wasn't one or two, um, but it seemed to come so much from more the care they received than something going wrong with their bodies. Um, and I realised at that time, this was in 1990, that um, first of all, there was a big hole in women actually getting information. I mean, obviously that was pre-internet. It was really hard for women to find good information about birthing and inform themselves. And also, there, there, were, there were no, was no sort of education around practical skills. Like, if we, if we think about uh, birthing, um, you know, some birth educators describe it as a marathon. You know, it's a strong, uh, demanding physical experience. And, of course, for marathons, we prepare. We do a huge amount of preparation, um, both mental and physical, and oh, climbing a mountain, whatever else you'd like to see. Um, but in birthing, so many women do absolutely nothing, rather the opposite. So when I started my classes, I tried to fill in those holes. I tried to make sure that women would get all the information they needed to make good choices. I introduced or developed lots of practical skills so that they could <clears throat> breathe through discomfort, uh, get to know discomfort in their bodies, get to know that discomfort in labour is normal. Um, and yeah, that's that's sort of how the classes um, developed. Um, yeah, well, I think um, that's a great point you make there about it being discomfort. Because I think one of the key things that I've learnt is you know understanding that it's not pain, that there's nothing wrong with you, because people associate pain with you know something being wrong with your body which then exactly is linked it. to medicalization you know treating that's that pain exactly, that's exactly it and if we've never just sat with discomfort if we've always run away from it uh 
we have no idea how to sit with the discomfort of um, contractions over maybe 24 hours, which is how long a normal birth, well, let's say a first birth, could possibly be. So, of course, then we're going to fall apart and want uh, and need, I would say, um, pain relief, all sorts of interventions to make it possible. But, of course, then many women feel devastated by how their birth went because with intervention, interventions, I'm not against interventions at all, if they're uh, um, life-saving. And and probably even if, you know, a woman feels that that, that's really what they need. But I think women aren't given any other choices. And just just to put it sort of into context in Australia, um, uh, uh, we have very high intervention rates, much higher than other um, developed countries. So... If you look at the World Health Organization recommendations, they say, look, about 85% of women can birth anywhere, you know, in a room, in the garden, up a tree, in a hospital, and they'll be fine. They just need good support. They don't need, you know, lots of intervention, technology, and so on. And about 15% of women will need some sort of assistance, you know, about 5% serious assistance, like a a life-saving cesarean, 10% maybe some other assistance. But what that says is the vast majority of us are perfectly able to birth. And yet what we're seeing in Australia at the moment is over 90% of women will have some kind of intervention. And of course, interventions uh, uh, have risks associated, um, harm associated with them. And when you start to use interventions on women that don't need it, you actually increase their risks of harm, of trauma and of morbidity and of babies. So uh, I'd just like to clarify that one uh, with one more thing is that I think uh, women have been given this message for so long in Australia and, you know, I've been involved with birthing now for sort of 33 years. uh, They've been given this message that birth is really dangerous, really scary and the only way you'll survive it and the only way your baby will live is if you completely surrender your power to the, the, the sort of health establishment. You don't ask questions, you don't need to know anything, we'll do everything for you. And I believe strongly that that's what's led to this really, really high levels of trauma, intervention, and, and so on. Yeah, I mean, as we've learnt from this um, inquiry into birth trauma, it's one in three women currently who are experiencing birth trauma. Why do you think... This has happened here in Australia? Look, I think that there are a number of things. I think, as I said, the messaging for such a long time is that it's almost as though women are selfish to want anything more than a live baby. Now, birth is very safe. Uh, uh, you know, we're well nutritioned these days, we have, you know, high levels of sanitation. We have all those interventions if women need it, but for different reasons they're being used on everyone. Why is there a high, such a high level of birth trauma? I think that women have become very frightened of birth. They don't trust their bodies. They are also, <clears throat> I think, again, there's a very strong message not to trust their bodies, um, to uh, put them in the hands of the, um, the medical establishment. And, of course, medical establishment is by its nature um, uh, um, uh, uh, want to intervene. I I think there's a real lack of belief and understanding of just 
how amazing women's bodies are. They are absolutely designed to birth. That's how, um, you know, that's how the human race has stayed alive. Uh, they're so fine-tuned around birth. They're amazing what they do. But I believe that there is a real lack of um, uh, belief for women in their own bodies, and I believe there's a real lack of belief and education for healthcare professionals, apart from midwives, uh, around trusting a woman's body and let it do it, just sit by and let it do its thing. And the other thing I think in terms of uh, rates of intervention and the resulting trauma is that there is massive pressure on beds in hospital, there isn't enough staff, the, the whole... Uh, uh, um, the, the whole setup of birthing, if you like, is that women, you know, they, if you interfere, if you pressurise women, if you put time pressures on women, then that birth can become very complicated. Most women, as I said, can birth, um, uh, uh, you know, quite quite happily, sort of just with good support, uh, and 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 interference um, pressure. Uh, interferes with that with that wonderful process, but of course, that doesn't fit in with the hospital system, where it's very hard to have enough staff to just be with that woman for 12 hours while she labours. It's much easier to book her in for a cesarean or book her in for an induction, because then you know what's happening with the beds, then you know what's happening with the staff, and this is what we're seeing happening in Australia. So I think that's a contributing factor. I think the fact that women are terrified is a contributing factor. And I think that, that uh, um, <clears throat> there is very, very distorted reporting in the media. So that's another factor that women go, oh, OK, all these terrible things happen if I don't you know, go into a hospital, even though none of that is evidence-based. Yeah, and I think you know, it's evidenced by the recent reports of you know, midwives quitting in um, large numbers and um, midwives unions organizing and a lot of them leaving the system because I think that, you know, they don't feel like they want to be a part of um, this kind of birth trauma. And it's, it's quite disturbing that, you know, women are almost expecting to come out of a birthing experience with trauma. What sort of stories are you hearing from women, you know, both in your classes and just generally in the community? Look, I, um, you know, um, the, there there are similar stories now to to what they were 30 years ago, and so, you know, I feel like um, I feel actually 30 years ago more women had better births than now. I think it's much worse than it was 30 years ago, but it was still the same similar culture. Um, stories that, first of all, women um, pressurised into things they don't want, like having internals, uh, internal examinations. Women don't need internal examinations um, in labour. Not even being asked their permission to have somebody's hands in their vagina, you know, which is such an intimate thing to be doing to a woman without introducing yourself and and asking her permission. Um, Women being forced, even physically, to stay on the bed if they wanted to get up and move around, actually being held down on the bed uh, so that, that that's where they birth. And, of course, lying on your back on a bed is absolutely the worst physiological position and the most painful physiological position to birth a baby in. So, re- really, um, uh, or, or women asking for things and being told that their baby will die if they do that. If they don't take the induction now, they're putting their baby at risk. Things that have absolutely no evidence behind them, 
Um, there are no signs that that's the case, but it's this bullying domination around getting women to do what you want them to do. Yeah, and yeah. That, that's quite, yeah. you know, it's quite concerning to hear that, um, especially the mm. comparison from 30 years ago. Um, you mm. know, and I've, I've seen um, women my age, educated women across, you know, mm. um, professions, women who are lawyers, even women who are nurses, uh, social workers, they don't know, for example, that you can say no to the, to the tests mm. that they offer you in the hospital, which is a really yeah. basic, basic thing, right? It's astounding that I think women use, women and men in Adelaide, so I lived in Adelaide for a long time and ran a big yoga centre there and so ran birthing workshops uh, for couples and it was always amazing and still is amazing when I teach now here that women will say, uh, will I be allowed to do that? Or no, they tell me I'm not allowed. Well, what is this allowed? I mean, we're not living in an authoritarian regime here. It is our choice. There is a charter of rights in every state around your rights in a hospital. And one of the main things is that nothing should be done to you without informed consent. And even if you refuse what they're offering, they should... This is in your, the charter of rights and in... Um, uh, uh, um, what the AMA put out that they're supposed to do is that even if they don't agree with your choice, that there's no pressure. They respect your choice. Now, that is absolutely not happening, you know. And and I also want to say that um, there seems to be such a culture, I, I think it's been looked at in different ways in Australia, around, you know, respecting women's pain. And it seems to me that women's pain, women's... Um, uh, uh, suffering is is ignored and birth is a time when women are at their most vulnerable they're in pain they're frightened and i i see that that is absolutely taken advantage of and women's pain and suffering is is very callously ignored by both i feel uh, you know they're amazing people in the hospital system don't get me wrong but by the system and then, of course, by our elected representatives who obviously don't think this is a big deal because, you know, over, you know, I think 1993, I took part in a, another inquiry in South Australia into birth intervention and trauma, and all of this same stuff came out and nothing changed. So oh, yeah. there obviously is no real... Uh, uh, um, I don't know what to say, compassionate, no real caring about women and their bodies and their uh, feelings about themselves and their connection with their baby because that's what really suffers when a woman really suffers and her connection to her partner because that really suffers. Like I feel like we're talking about big stuff here in our society. Yeah, absolutely. And everything you've just described, I think really summarizes why even you know women who are in educated circles are still you know hesitant to do the research and hesitant mm. to empower themselves and are more likely to sort of put um you know the their birth in the hands of medical professionals because i feel like so much of society is geared against you and is trying to disempower you in that situation mm, mm. and i think look i mean i think there's there are such simple solutions to this issue if if if, uh, if there was really any will to do something um, 
I think what it's become is not uh, is not where women are the main centre here, women and their babies and their well-being. It's about politics and it's about money. And unfortunately, abnormal birth, you know, interventions, specialists, uh, um, you know, operating rooms, all of this stuff earns a lot of money for the birth industry. Mm. And they're a big lobby group, a very big lobby group, and they have the ear of our government. And this is really what stopped any, any real... Uh, uh, progress over the last 30 years. The, the, the research is all there. It's not, oh, well, we don't really know. We absolutely know what is good care. We know that the gold standard of care is continuity of midwifery care, that you have the same midwife in your pregnancy, in the birth, and postnatally. We know that babies and mothers uh, uh, do the absolute best uh, with that sort of care, and interventions are minimised to women who really need it. But that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing less than 5% in Australia have access to that care. Even though where there is that care, again, the research is there. Women are doing really well, but hardly anyone actually gets that care. Yeah, that's right. And I think you were saying as well that, you know, people who do do the research and do do classes like the one you offer and other birth education classes do have much better births and that's, um, you know, that evidence is, is here. Yeah. Um, do you think yeah. that, you know, the reason that the, the recent inquiry hasn't found it so difficult to get women to share their birth trauma stories is because they feel so disempowered? Um, I think there are a number of things here. I, I, I hope I'm not going overboard here, but I think uh, when women suffer trauma to their bodies in the most intimate places, I think it's, if you look at the, the women who come forward after sexual assault, it's about 13%, right? I think, I think there are similar feelings around this. It is a really intimate place to have people doing things to you without your permission. And, and why you then end up with trauma. So I think that I think women uh, feel so awful about it that it's really hard to then tell somebody else and express it. I also think that women are made to feel, as I said before, you know, what are you moaning about? You've got a live baby. You know, shut up. Uh, and so I think women actually feel guilty for feeling so bad. And the other thing I think is just very practical. You know, women are really busy and exhausted with young children. So I think all of those things actually stop women coming forwards with this stuff and saying, that I think they're very confused because they know it's not right. But on the other hand, they're told it's absolutely fine. You know, everyone's going through this. This is what birth is like. It's horrendous. You know, this is what you hear. You know, birth is, is painful and frightening and... And I would like to say that, like from my experience, but also from births I've attended, and I attended my uh, the um, birth of my grandson two years ago at Sunshine Hospital. It was such a joyful, amazing experience for all of us. And I've seen so many women who have had amazing birth experience, like you guys as well. It was joyful, and we don't talk about that. We just talk about the, the awfulness of it. I think a lot more women just with just simply by making sure every woman has a midwife, continuity of care midwife, um, either in hospital or at home. And if she needs more care, if she's high risk, she can have a continuity of care midwife plus an obstetrician as a consultant. So that's what the evidence says, that basically at all levels of risk, 
having a continuity of care midwife is safer for women. So at higher levels of risk, you'd bring an obstetrician when you needed one, but your main care would still be a midwife. Whereas I think we believe the opposite. The more we pay, the higher the qualifications, the better we're going to be. That is absolutely not borne out by research. Definitely. Vanessa, this has been really great. Unfortunately, we're running out of time this morning. But I really wanted to say thank you to for you to join us this morning and talk us through this really important issue that I feel, you know, doesn't get talked about enough. Um, And I really do hope that we see the changes that you're talking about come about from this recent inquiry. Yes, and thank you so much for inviting me, Kanagi. It's been sort of great to just to, to say something about this incredibly important subject. Absolutely. Thanks, Vanessa. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. So that was birth educator Vanessa Shribman talking to us about how women and birthing people can avoid birth trauma. We will be right back after this. Hey everyone, this is Jen Cloer. I'm here at 3CR Radical Radio. And it's just a little reminder that you might have forgotten to subscribe. So why don't you do it now? Jump on the phone 9419 8377 or online at 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. Let's keep independent community radio alive. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Up next, we hear from Fiona from Housing for the Aged Action Group, who spoke to Janet, Maya and Peter from United Housing Co-op on their 40th anniversary. In this interview, they discussed the history of cooperative movements and the importance of participatory tenant-led housing, how things have changed, and what the future might hold for this important mode of housing. I'm joined in the studio today by some tenants of the United Housing Co-op in Footscray and also the general manager of United Housing Co-op. How are you all going today? Good, thank you. Really Pretty good, well, thank Excellent. Before we get started, I wanted to talk a little bit about housing co-ops. So cooperative housing is a model that started in the 70s and it rose out of um, housing activism. And it was a response to, I guess, some of the real big housing problems that were happening at the time where Housing Commission were treating tenants really badly. They were being patronised and and not really part of their housing. And as a result of that, um, a different model came up and was actually funded by government for quite a while too. Um, Those times have changed, but United Housing Co-op has been around for 40 years this year, as has Housing for the Aged Action Group. Both of our organisations arose from housing activism at that time. So it's a really great opportunity for us to look back and think about how housing has changed over that time, why cooperatives are an important form of housing and what, how they might be actually a solution for the future as well as something from the past. So I might start with you, Janet. Um, so I believe that you're one of the founding members of the United Housing Co-op. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved? Uh, yes, I was... Um, uh, the United Housing Co-op is made up of three um, smaller cooperatives one of which was Essendon that I was in. I was with my daughter in public housing and um, we were recruited, I guess, by a community worker from council and got together to start a cooperative following in the model of Footscray, one of the other founding co-ops. They were a little bit ahead of us, I think. 
And what about what year was that about? Do you think that was about eighty-two, nineteen eighty-two. Oh wow! Mm. Right. And what about you, Maya? How did you join up with the United Housing Co-op? Uh, well, I was a member with Footscray Housing Co-op. Um, but I didn't come in right at the beginning. I came about 10 years in. So I've been a member for 27 years. Um, and uh, in that time, I've seen the co-op movement flourish, um, particularly with uh, we changed once um, Essendon came on board with um, Footscray. We changed our name to United Housing Cooperative. So you were sort of the merger of three smaller housing co-ops. Is that how it went? Yes, we've just um, uh, had uh, Sunshine St Albans come on board with us. Right, okay. So what's changed in those 27 slash 40 years? (laughs) Quite a lot. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we joined together because um, the smaller housing co-ops were not really viable or working, and um, although there are still a couple around, but... um, a bigger organisation is more efficient and we have over 130 properties now, so housing quite a lot of people. That's a lot, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's a lot more professional now too than when, when it first mm. started. Uh, we have um, a lot of professional people uh, helping to run the co-ops now, like yeah. Peter and the rest of the staff. Um, and because in the in the very early days, it was the members doing all the work um, and doing all the the maintenance of the or the, the like painting and things like that to the houses. But now we get uh, professional people in to do that. Um, the houses are all maintained at a very very high standard, um, and uh, people look after the houses too and are more inclined to look after the houses if they're in good repair. So the 130 um, houses are spread across, I guess, the inner west, would that be correct? And, and what sort yep. of housing is it? Well, can you describe the, the housing? Is it is it standalone? Is it flats? Yeah, is it's it, deta- yeah, deta- largely detached housing. Um, we've got some blocks of units, but largely detached housing and villa units. Yeah, and they're spread from Strathmore down to Williamstown, actually. So we've yeah, the inner west uh, zone sort of is is where we come from. I just add to what Janet and May have said around you know the evolution of United. It was from those very early days of people for public housing and groups and activists like Janet fighting for housing justice. We we, there's been good and bad, I suppose. Some people would say that the regulatory environment introduced mm-hmm. by government has has restricted the community and member sort of involvement to some extent, but we've tried really hard to hang on to that tenant-member governance model. Like, our board's made up of tenants primarily um, and two independents, but... We, we, we've tried to keep the best of, of the community-based management model that co-ops were built on. But, of course, with the government's regulatory environment changes, we've had to adapt. We've had to... We've got lots of compliance and KPIs and, um, as you know, uh, Fiona, a lot of reporting to government funding agencies. So it, it's forced to change and so do so is Equal Opportunity Acts and Privacy Acts and confidentiality agreements and everything else. So 
It's been an interesting evolution, I reckon. I mean, from when Janet sat around a room of six other housing, well, housing activists and tenants, um, and then went to Canberra protesting for more housing. Um, from those early days of a group of women getting together with a local housing worker to buy properties and form a cooperative to what we are now, it's it's been a huge transition, but. We're very proud that we've survived anyway those 40 years. So, and as I, as Janet Mayer said, we, we we didn't have to merge, but it's made us much more viable and we can't be picked off by anyone. We, we feel like we can keep our co-op alive in its own right. Yeah, strength in so, numbers. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because I've done a bit of reading into the history of the co-op movement in Victoria um, and one of the things that it came out of, I guess, was the... Um, anti-war protests as well and the women's refuge protests and then housing justice sort of came as part of that and the Holden Street squat that ended up being supported by the refuge movement um, as part of those early days. Um, But I guess the principle is Mm. that the co-ops are managed by the tenants um, and it's a self-governing concept. Absolutely. Uh, so, So how do you think you've managed to retain that I guess it's quite different, Janet, from back in the day. What do you think are the the things that you've needed to do to adapt to the changes but still remain the essence of self-governing? It certainly is um, very different, Fiona. In the old days, we managed it all ourselves and now there's we've got paid staff and, as Peter was saying, there's a fairly rigorous um, regulation and compliance environment. um, and as Maya said before, we've become more professional. Like we have portfolios, like the board members have portfolios. There's training available if people don't feel terribly confident. And in that way, it's much more supportive even than it was even in the early days. But yes, it's very different now. And so the tenants get to have a say in, I guess, how the place is run with the decision making. Um, does that involve a lot of meetings or what does that look like for residents? Yes, um, for both of you, yeah. Monthly board, uh, no, six weekly board meetings now I think it is, but um, the, uh, it's full on for the board. There's other committees uh, as well that, um, uh, that report to the board, like uh, tenancy, uh, maintenance, uh, policy... Um, finance. Fi- yes, <laughs> finance, of course, Janet. <laughs> um, yes, so there's... Um, uh, general uh, meetings, Matt. Oh, yes, general meetings. Thank you, Peter. Yes. <laughs> so We get 60, 60 plus of those. Yeah. Is that all yes. of the tenants of the of the other, like the 130 properties who bring them all together or, or how does that work? Yep. Yeah, it's it's um, a good uh, amount of, um, of uh, response yeah um and also we have a an AGM right and all members uh, are have to attend that one yeah and so I guess um one of the big things that have changed recently is is taking over what used to be the Lions ILU village in Footscray or West Footscray um, and that's a real a real kind of exciting development for the co-op would you be able to tell us a little bit about what that is maybe Peter, starting with you about what what is the what is the Footscray Lions Village project, and then maybe I'll ask Janet and Maya what they're most excited about. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, 
Yeah, well, we, we did put in a bid for the big build uh, social housing growth fund. We thought we had a good model that worked for a whole range of people and and we wanted to provide sort of a long-term housing option for our older women in particular. In particular. And um, so, yeah, we got together. A, we knew the Lions Village was uh, operating in Summerhill Road and it um, was falling into disrepair and it, it did have a number of old women living there, mainly of Filipino origin. And, uh, yeah, we just partnered. I went and had a lot of meetings with the Lions Club and sort of talked to them about forming a partnership and putting in a proposal to get funding for a co-op village, if you like. And um, we we didn't expect to get off the ground because most of the big build money was taken up by housing associations and we're just a housing provider as such, a smaller tiered organisation. But anyway, we were lucky. I think they loved our concept. Um, and so we got a government grant to, to build 49 uh, apartments in a sort of village model where we we want to replicate what happens in Europe um, if we can to some extent you know co-housing models where they're tenant controlled as much as possible within our regulatory environment Um, so it's it's been we've had we've been fraught with difficulties because of the building industry chaos that we've had to deal with and cost blowouts and a number of other things which probably um, essential well it's evidence of the of the problems of doing a big housing bill with the community sector and not-for-profit sector but anyway yeah after a lot of trouble we're back on board where we're about to restart works uh, albeit with a much bigger budget and much better bigger cost impact on UHC but we're pretty confident we're going to develop this fantastic um, co-op village and hopefully we can do it with Hague support and other groups support in in um, providing good quality housing for women over the age of 75. We have to get 75% off the priority applic- application waiting list and 25% will be probably low-waged older women. So, no, we're really excited from um, that we got this over the, over the line, but it's been a hell of a lot of work to get it there. So, sorry, that's I've probably said too much, but I could go on because it's... <laughs> Uh, it's occupied my life for two years. <laughs> and what about you, Janet? You're on the finance subcommittee of the co-op. That must be a big injection of funding and also a bit of a headache for you as members. How's it, how's it been, how's it been yeah. going for you guys? Well, luckily we've got um, uh, a good um, finance subcommittee and one of the directors um, of the cooperative is the is the has the finance portfolio and uh, he's been a great help but um, yes it's mostly members of the um, committee but yeah they they didn't didn't tell us that we were they didn't we don't really have to we as the finance committee I think don't have to so much account for the multi-million dollar big build um, money but it does have an impact of course on Mm. everyday yeah. um, operations of the cooperative. And so what are you most excited about, Maya, in terms of the of the new build? Well, I'm hoping to move in there. Great. Um, and I'm looking forward to um, uh, making new friends. 
um, and very much uh, with the Filipino ladies coming back. Um, I'm from a Dutch Indonesian background and I'm used to uh, that Asian food and everything. So I'm really looking forward to getting in and <laughs> maybe having community lunches or something. Yeah. But also just the um, uh, just the new adventure too. Yeah, I've been in my house for 27 years and I'm finding the the garden is getting too much. I love my garden and I'm going to miss it dearly. But it's uh, it's going to be fun having other people to work with in a garden. I do all the gardening myself at the moment. Um, and uh, having having sort of gardening committees and uh, just watching the place grow and develop too. It's it's just very very exciting. So part of the design of, of the of the new housing is to have that communal <laughs> garden space and, and yes. that communal area in the middle. Have you, as tenants or prospective tenants, had much to say in terms of the design process? Oh yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. And so was that one of the things that you requested that you have a communal garden or? Yes, yes, uh, and hopefully a communal orchard as well. Fantastic. All right. But uh, yes, we've been um, very involved in what it's going to look like and the, the, the things that are going to being, uh, be included in it and, and that. So, How important do you think that co-design type process is in terms of housing for older women? Very, very important because uh, being an older uh, person, you, you're used to things... Um, it's not like when you first move into a flat or something when you're a teenager. We've got a life, uh, we've got children, grandchildren um, and all sorts of different things that we've built up during our lifetime. And we want uh, housing to suit that, not to suit a 20-year-old. Mm. And um, doing it this way, being able to, to have a, a big input, will hopefully give us a... Uh, all or most of uh, most of the things that we need. Yeah, if you had one thing that you could ask the government to do for housing for older people, what what would that one thing be? Do you think? I'll start with you, Janet. <laughs> oh, um, I would I would hope that they would. It will never happen, I'm sure. But I was ho- I would hope that they would give um, older people or single people even a bit more space than one bedroom mm. I really think that that's important because we all have well we nearly all have families or need the help of a carer at, at some time whether temporarily or permanently and I really think that a one bedroom flat is a bit cosy yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, we hear that a lot from people who mm. most of the one most of the older person's public housing in Victoria is one bedroom, and and sometimes people do need more space, like you say. So with the with the Footscray Village, is is it more than one bedroom? What's the have you had much input into that? We've got um, we've got um, I've, Peter might remember this. I know we've got some two bedroom flats in the new village, and we've got some one what they call one and a half, which is sort of one in a study space, and there are some single bedroom flats. Yeah. And what about you, Maya? What's your one one wish? If you could have any wish of government for housing for older people, what would that be? Uh, lots more um, money available for a start to uh, to have appropriate uh, appropriately built housing. Yeah, yeah. Similar to what you've got 
at Footscray, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, if not better, like Janet was saying, uh, I think I've always thought minimum should be two bedroom. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it depends on budgets and things. Uh, out there, we've also got uh, provision for two uh, full, um, fully, fully accessed um, uh, apartments as well. So in terms uh, of accessibility for people with disabilities? Or? Yes, yeah. yes. They're, they're dedicated for those ones. But all the, all the units are um, accessible. They've all been made so that the, you can have visitors over that, uh, or people that come to stay uh, that, that need that extra width for, of doorways and mm. things. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, uh, I think just much more uh, government help in this area. Yeah. And what about you, Peter? Would you agree? Uh, yeah, all those things. I think they've they've nailed it. You know, the adaptable design. Um, the one point five bedrooms does allow a carer to stay over or a grandchild. We we only got twelve of those. It's been a bit tight, but we have got some. The two bedrooms, as you know, will have to be a, a two people, a minimum, to live in a two bedder, uh, according to government. Same as public housing. But I, I guess the other important thing which they did, um, Mayor, particularly emphasised the communal area, the, the ability to, to form a community and have, have space to do stuff like, you know, gardening and, um, you know, with exercise classes or uh, yoga or whatever they want to do. That there's a communal space and cook, share cooking, share, share meals, have a life, you know, yeah. beyond their housing. So, and that's really important. We, we, we've had to fight to keep that little communal area. Well, it's quite a good size communal area. But that's, um, that's also a feature of this group housing situation. I think that's really important. Yeah. And member control. You know, there will be a member yes. tenant committee, tenant member committee that will have input to all those things um, beyond the design input that they had. They will have input into how, how the place is run. And we've got uh, 80 kilowatt solar embedded network and that will reduce and we're electric only no gas so we're, we're trying to be as sustainable as possible and also to keep the cost down so there's it, it is a it's um hopefully it's a really good model for other um housing uh, for older people yeah and that's what we always hoped i mean we've had to cut back a bit because of the budget cuts but it's still going to be pretty cool i think so that was Fiona from Raise the Roof speaking to tenants from the United Housing Co-op. You can catch Raise the Roof on the airwaves on Wednesdays from 5.30 to 6pm and head to 3cr.org.au slash harg for all episodes. We're going to jump into our final interview for this morning now. Last month, the federal court ruled in favour of the area's traditional owners, the Bangala people, who had argued that they were not properly consulted by the former coalition government about the decision to pick the site. The court set aside the declaration from 2021 that the site at Napandi, at the top of the Airi Peninsula, be used for the facility. Recently, the federal government said it would not be appealing the court's decision. Yesterday, Fung spoke with Dr. Margie Beavis, Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, about this latest development. On 18th of July, the federal court set aside the declaration that was made in November 2021, naming a site near Kimber, South Australia, as the new site for a national radioactive waste facility. Last week, 
the Minister for Resources, Madeleine King, announced the federal government would not appeal the court's decision. So let's go back to the beginning, Margie. Could you talk us through the process by which nuclear waste in this country is stored and disposed of? Okay. Um, it's probably almost worth going back to the beginning of where nuclear waste is made. Um, the vast majority, huge majority, is made at Anstone in Lucas Heights, about 25 kilometres from Sydney's CBD. There's a small research reactor. And that reactor make, is used to do a lot of different things. Uh, silica, irradiate silicon chips involved with gauges. There's a number of sort of manufacturing and industrial uses and also to make um, medical isotopes for nuclear medicine. Um, in terms of what's happening around Australia, there has been a lot of scaremongering from the government saying there's nuclear waste at 100 different sites and that's why we needed a new site. Well, the nuclear waste that's not at Anstone, the rest of it, the other vast large amount is located in drums at Woomera in South Australia, remote South Australia. Apart from that, there is a very tiny amount that has been stored around Australia in labs and in hospitals, and that has been stored safely for decades. It's very small volume and is not an urgent problem and certainly not a reason to do such a sloppy job, sloppy job in designing a nuclear waste facility. But it's one of many false justifications that have been given by the government. During this whole process of nominating another waste site or waste facility, were they able to justify their decision of building a new um, waste facility in Kimba, South Australia? Or is it like what you said, a lot of, uh, I guess, misinformation and uh, scaremongering tactics in order for this proposal to go ahead? Certainly for the people at Kimber, there was a lot of stuff saying that if they didn't, that they should do this because of all the people they know who need cancer treatment and if they didn't do it, then uh, nuclear medicine would be in danger of stopping it, not being available in Australia. And that's been said at many occasions and in particular the Minister Pitt went on breakfast television in South Australia making the same false claim. It's false for a number of reasons. Firstly, Nuclear medicine is a tiny part of cancer treatment. It's usually used mostly for diagnostic scans, such as heart scans or there's a variety of them. But, I mean, people, chemotherapy, radiotherapy are not nuclear medicine. They're quite separate and there's so much scare tactics being used. So the people of Kimber were sort of presented with misinformation from the get-go. The urgency is clearly not there. In estimates um, a couple of years ago, I think about three years ago, the head of Arpanza, and Arpanza is the regulatory body, independent regulatory body that monitors nuclear waste, said there was no urgency to get nuclear waste out of Anster, no urgency to create, that there was sufficient base at Anstow to store intermediate nuclear waste for decades to come. And even after that statement, so about a year after that statement, the government budgeted for a whole new facility at Lucas Heights, so still where the reactor is, to build another intermediate level waste facility. So there's room for, you know, a number of decades, I'd be saying 2050, 2060s, but certainly a number of decades for the intermediate level 
waste to be stored there. The reason that's important is because globally, nobody has an answer for what to do with intermediate level waste, which remains radioactive for about 100,000 years. It's a global problem, and there was no point sort of just dumping it in remote South Australia, sort of out of sight, out of mind, because that would have just been kicking the can down the road and making it a liability for South Australians in 100 years' time. It was really um, not world's best practice. World's best practice is to store it in one place and then to move it to its final resting place. You don't store it in one place, then store it in another place and sort of move it around. The likelihood of radioactive accidents is much higher whilst waste is being moved, and, and it was certainly not world's best practice what they were proposing. Yeah, the double handling of, of nuclear waste, like you said, seems to go against international best practice, seems much riskier and more dangerous and, of course, just then a waste of money and resources. Uh, like you said, it's, it's no permanent solution, is it? No. This waste needs a really considered long-term disposal solution and that's going to take decades to do and should have been thought about a long time ago but people tend to want to go for the cheap out of mind solution rather than actually confronting how expensive this waste is. It's, it's interesting with the reactor at Lucas Heights, they export a lot of nuclear medicine isotopes and that leaves us with the waste and really it's, they, they say it's a terrific export industry, well it's not because it's, it doesn't, it, it only in terms of cost recovery analysis internationally suggests that you really only get back 10 or 15% of what it actually truly costs. The only reason they can say it's making profit is because they're not making allowances for insurance, for decommissioning, for disposal of the waste. It's a very short-term approach, and with nuclear waste you cannot take a short-term approach. Yes, I believe you were speaking about this to Jan Bartlett on Tuesday Home Time earlier this month and uh, looking into how much Australia currently uses when it comes to the world's supply of isotopes. Sorry, Margie, you'll have to correct me on the terminology, but compared to then what they're hoping to, to use in exporting uh, yes. in exporting these materials, could you talk, sure, sure, uh, sure. talk about this a bit sure. more? The, the nuclear medicine isotope that's most commonly used is one called technetium, and it's made from molybdenum. Anyway, I'll just start talking about them. That, that isotope is what I'm referring to. But ANSTO, Australia uses 1% of the global supply of this isotope. For some reason, they decided it was a good idea to become the world's major manufacturer. Most countries don't make this. Most countries import their nuclear medicine. The vast majority of countries, in fact, import their nuclear medicine. And, in fact, whenever our reactor breaks down or when our reactor is being maintained, and that happens quite often, the breakdowns and the maintenance, we also import our nuclear medicine. But ANSTO, for some reason, decided that it would be great, a great export opportunity to go from 1%, which is what we need, up to between 25 and 30% of global supply. And as I said, no, not only is that financially a considerable loss-making opportunity, I mean, well, not opportunity, it, makes, it loses money if you look at it, if you analyse all the true, true costs, but also it leaves us with all the nuclear waste that's used in making those isotopes. And future generations...
generations will have to deal with it. Yes, it, it sounds like it would have such long-lasting negative impact on future generations and yet something that is not considered or, or perhaps ignored um, when faced with very short-term monetary benefits. Maggie, I wanted to return now to the actual case that was being brought to the federal court. On the 18th of July of this year, Justice Charles Worth of the federal court set aside the declaration of the site that was made in November 2021 due to the presence of apprehended bias in the former minister's decision. I was wondering if you could tell us what apprehended bias means and also talk further about the role of the Bangala native title holders in this case. Sure. My understanding of apprehended bias, and I'm not a lawyer by training, I'm a GP, so I'm certainly not a lawyer. My understanding was basically that the minister made a decision and then tried to justify that decision, sort of retrofitting subsequently everything to fit that original decision. In other words, he didn't go into it with an open mind. He made a decision that's going to be there and then did a whole lot of things to retrofit that decision. So it was saying that the decision was not reached with a proper open mind, and I think that's correct. The Bangala People's Court case was a terrific thing for them to mount, although very expensive. Um, the government uh, fought that campaign and spent over $13 million, the Mangala, who clearly are not as well resourced as someone with taxpayer money, the Bangala people spent nearly half a million dollars. And what this court case did is went with a number of uh, proposals as to why this was such a flawed decision. And I can tell you there were quite a number because it's been very badly handled. But the apprehended bias, one of the demonstrations of the apprehended bias was that the Bangala people's opposition to this dump was not really taken into account properly. The, the, the Bangala people are the traditional owners and they were told by the previous Minister Canavan that they would that their views would be taken into account. But in fact, when they had a community ballot, the government decided to base it on the Kimber Town Council boundaries. Now, that was really problematic for a number of reasons. Firstly, it excluded entirely the traditional owners, which is pretty outrageous. And secondly, using the town council boundaries excluded quite a number of farmers who were closer to the dump than the actual township. The third reason that was a bit outrageous is that the people in that whole region who are most likely to benefit from a dump being built are, in fact, the businesses that are inside Kimber. Um, I feel very sorry for the people of Kimber because I think they're now very much a divided community, having been a really... Um, it, it, it's done a lot to damage the community of Kimba. But anyway, the Bangala... So they had a vote, and I should note that when they had a vote um, in the Southern Flinders Ranges, which was another place they had proposed for this waste, instead of doing this rigged vote, they said, OK, we'll take 50 kilometres radius from around the dump and survey everybody in that 50 kilometres radius. And when they did that, the vote was clearly, no, we don't want this dump. So the government, having learned from the mistake of actually doing a fair vote, then decided to do one that was based on town boundaries and excluded the, the Bangala people. The Bangala people were very smart in terms of they then commissioned an independent survey company to survey the Bangala group, and the traditional owners said 100%. Everybody who responded to that survey said 100%, we do not want this dump. Um, and if they're... 
if their votes had been added to the town council votes, it would have been clearly clearly not a majority of votes. So the whole process has been sort of manipulated in various ways from go to woe. What was interesting was the Morrison government tried to um, stop the Bangala even being able to take the court case. And this, to some credit, the Labor government actually opposed that removal of judicial review and the Labor government, combined with the Greens and minority senators, stopped that, that proposal to remove the ability to even have a court case. So that is some credit on the um, ALP, but it's a, re- a big relief to see that they are not going to challenge this, um, not going to appeal this court decision. Yeah, that's such a positive result for that area for the traditional owners and also for the farmers who were going to be affected by the waste dump. I did want to ask, though, obviously the fight doesn't end here. This issue isn't going to go away. What can people do to ensure that they keep up to date with what's happening when it comes to nuclear waste in this country? And if there are people who want to get involved in some way, what would you recommend? Um, the Australian Conservation Foundation have put together a very nice brochure sort of looking forwards, trying to say, talking about advancing responsible radioactive waste management in Australia, and I think that's a really important proposal that they've put forward along with the Conservation Council of South Australia. I'd say if you want to get involved, the organisations, I'm with the Medical Association for prevention of war, and if people want to join us in that campaign, they can, or they can um, support the Australian Conservation Foundation, or they can support the Conservation Council of South Australia. All of all of us are working on this campaign, and I think now we need to go back to the drawing board. The incredibly flawed decision to acquire nuclear submarines adds a whole new dimension to this, in that the waste that comes with those submarines is much larger volume and much more toxic than anything Australia's had before. I'm very much hoping we can um, reverse that decision because I think it's incredibly unwise, but it means that the government is now going to have to look at what they can do to develop a long-term deep geological facility for disposal. And That's going to be a very difficult and slow and expensive process. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for listing some of the organisations that listeners can get involved with. I think something that we need to be aware of is being able to see through um, any of the messaging that comes from the federal governments who are trying to put these things into into action. Um, you were saying earlier, Margie, you know, a lot of misinformation when it came to nuclear medicine that, that seemed to be one of the main points main arguments that was used for for building these waste facilities. So it seems really vital that people are able to read and take in any communication from the federal government with a critical eye. Um, Absolutely. So that yeah. so that we can fight back against against yes. this misinformation. Absolutely. Um, yes, there's fact sheets on the Medical Association for Prevention of War website, although that's about to be updated, so I hope they're accessible. But yes, I think that, that I'm hoping that this next process can at least be uh, done in a more considered, a more responsible and a more honest way because the previous process was really um, a disgrace. 
Well, thank you so much for joining on us on Tuesday Breakfast, Margie. We'll, we'll be staying on top of this topic, uh, especially in the context of AUKUS. But for now, thank you again for coming on the show. Well, thank you. And I'd just like to say, pay my respects to the Bangala people for their work and their persistence and more strength for their arms. Thank you. That was Fung speaking to Dr Margie Beavis, Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. You can find out more about MAPW by going to their website, mapw.org.au. That brings us to the end of our show. We started off our show this morning listening to Fung's episode of Women on the Line, where she spoke with Nora Mansour about... Uh, Palestinian resistance, the power of language and the need for the Australian government to step up and take real action against Israel. We then spoke with birth educator Vanessa Shribman about the recent inquiry into birth trauma and how people can avoid birth trauma. We then listened to uh, an excerpt from Raise the Roof where Fiona from Housing for the Aged Action Group spoke with people from United Housing Co-op on their 40th anniversary and just then ended with Fung's conversation with Dr. Margie Beavis. Your on 3 Tuesday breakfast will be back next Tuesday. Coming up next is Accent of Women. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.